I deserve to be sick, financially strapped and miserable because of my past sins. I can't pray for myself, that's selfish. I am a victim. My parents had a disease, so I will too. I'm a victim of someone else's sin and shame defines me. There is no cure, therefore nothing can be done. I have to rely upon myself to do it. I have to be in control because I do not trust in God's plan. I am stuck. I will never be happy. I will never get out of debt. I will never have friends who understand me. I will never be able to find a loving spouse, husband or wife. I will never be healthy again. I will never discover my purpose in life. I feel guilty doing something for myself. My needs are secondary to everyone else's needs. I am not enough, not smart enough, not thin enough, not muscular enough, not popular enough, not holy enough, not pretty enough, not rich enough, not powerful enough, not a good mother, not a good father or husband or wife. I'm invisible. I'm not much of a thought. I'm worthless. I'm a mistake. I should not have been born. I'm a disappointment. I am a problem child. I am too messed up, beyond help. I'm an addict. I'm a drunk. I'm a loser. I am hopeless. I am broken. Even if I do repent, I'm not worthy of his forgiveness. We are already in the fourth week of our current message series for the Lenten season, looking at the place of healing in the Christian life. In the first week, we uncovered three truths, perhaps three surprising truths about healing. First truth, we are, all of us, broken in various ways. And in various ways, we live in a broken world, which means we're all in need of healing. Wounds are simply a reality as a result of original sin and a consequence of personal sin. Second truth, healing was core and critical to Jesus' ministry, message, and mission. Along with preaching and teaching, it's simply what he did. He came to bring healing to broken bodies, broken hearts, broken relationships, and our broken world, which means he came to bring healing to you and me. Third truth, as with all aspects of the Christian life, the reality of divine healing is shrouded in mystery. We don't really know how it works. There's certainly no formula for it. It requires faith if it's going to happen at all. Divine healing and faith go together. Some of our wounds are shallow, others deep. Some are old and familiar, others are fresh and raw. There are those among us who are physically wounded. Others bear emotional wounds like anger, anxiety, spiritual wounds like doubt or despair, and self-inflicted wounds, the result of our selfishness. And then there are wounds that are imposed on us from loss and grief. The question, the question becomes, what do you do with the wounds you most certainly have? How do you handle them? And ultimately, there are two, and really only two choices. 
relying on ourselves or relying on the Lord. Relying on ourselves, we can expect only limited success at best. Relying on the Lord holds unlimited possibilities because Jesus Christ came to renew and restore everything that's been broken. Elsewhere in Scripture, Scripture says, Behold, I come to make all things new again. He came to restore all things to their intended wholeness. He came to heal, to heal you and me and to make us whole. But for that to happen, of course, we have to acknowledge our need for healing. And then we've got to do one other thing, too. When we talked about this last week, we have to be attentive to the Lord, listening to Him, instead of listening to all those lies that we tell ourselves. Today we're going to look at how the Lord can heal our wounds precisely by dispelling the lies. We're in the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter where we find this story. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So Jesus and his disciples were traveling through a, the central region of Palestine that was called Samaria. It was noon. So in the heat of the day, they take a break, stopping by an historic site called Jacob's Well. Jacob, as in the Jacob of Genesis, from whom the 12 tribes of Israel descended. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So a Samaritan woman comes to the well fetching water for her household. Homes had no running water, of course, so it had to be brought in daily, and it was considered women's work. As the woman draws her water, Jesus, who had no bucket, asks her, asks her for a drink. Now, to us, that seems like no big deal, right? However, Jesus, in doing so, was breaking two huge societal conventions. As the woman herself points out, the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and a woman for a drink? First, men didn't talk to women not related to them in public. They just didn't do it. That Jesus would address her at all was simply unheard of. Second, Jesus was a Jew, and she was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans also didn't talk to one another. That's because they hated one another. The Jewish people regarded Samaritans as sellouts and half-breeds. Due to historical circumstances, Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles and over time adopted many pagan practices, mixing them up with their Jewish faith. It was abhorrent to pious Jews who consequently looked down on the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in turn, hated the Jews for looking down on them. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. What's he talking about? 
Well, water in the desert was very precious resource. The need for water, a daily consideration for sure. But Jesus is using this basic daily need to introduce a more profound need, a need of the heart. And he's establishing that he has the resources to meet that need. But the woman doesn't understand him. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Her reference to Jacob is ironic since Jesus was greater, but her point is clear. She has a bucket, he doesn't. How can he help her? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's saying, Jacob provided you with a well, but you have to keep coming back to it daily. It's something outside yourself. I want to give you something else, something that will renew and refresh you, that will dwell within you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about God's life in her soul. Jesus is referring to spiritual realities, but of course, the woman is still thinking literally. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to keep coming here. Hmm. If you've been tuning out or running over your grocery list or arranging your schedule for the week ahead or trying to figure out what's for dinner tonight, now's a good time to tune back in. Because this, this is key. This is the key to the whole deal. She says to Jesus, so that I don't have to keep coming back here. Remember the gospel writer John mentioned in the introduction to this story that the time of day was noon. That is not an incidental detail. That is not a small detail. That little fact about the time of day plays a huge role in this encounter with Jesus. The Samaritan woman comes to the well at noon, at the hottest time of the day. Women didn't do that. They would never do that. They went to the well early in the morning when it was cooler to avoid the heat. And all the women went. They went together because the well was like the neighborhood Starbucks. It was their main social activity of the day. It served as a place of community and connection. It was like their Facebook, the place to exchange news and information and inevitably gossip. But the Samaritan woman wanted no part of that. She goes out of her way to avoid the other women. Why? Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And she said, I do not have a husband. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying, you do not have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. She's gone out of her way to avoid the other women because she buys the lie that she tells herself and probably that they tell about her that she's a bad person because of her history. Consequently, she's arranged her life 
around her woundedness. Think about that. She's arranged her life around her woundedness because that's what we do. She's had five husbands and now is living with a man who is not her husband, and this would have made her a complete social outcast. The thing is, the situation was not necessarily of her own doing. The only reason a woman would have had five husbands would have because, was because each in turn had rejected her. Men had a right to divorce. Women did not. She had been rejected by five different men. That must have created a profoundly deep wound. And at this point, she's living with a man who is not her husband out of basic necessity, so she can merely survive. In that society at that time, women needed men. A woman needed a husband or some other male figure for protection, financial support, and even basic civil rights. Jesus isn't calling her out. There's nobody around. He's not trying to embarrass her. He's naming her wound. He even validates her by noting what you said is true. Simply by speaking to her, engaging her, and naming her wound, he's accepting her and he's loving her. And she feels it. She knows it. The woman said, Sir, I can see you are a prophet. I know the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. The healing begins. The woman sees that Jesus is someone special. He can read her heart. He knows things about her that would be impossible for a stranger to know, at least without godly knowledge, and thus the reference to the Messiah. It's almost like she's asking, is it you? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers her unasked question, I am he. In the gospel, this woman, this poor woman at the well, is the very first person Jesus reveals himself to as the Messiah. Others, like Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, others knew about his identity through divine revelation. But this wounded woman was the very first person Jesus chose to confide his real identity to. Think about that. This outcast, this pariah, is accorded this amazing privilege, this high honor. It's a moment of extraordinary healing. Her dignity is renewed and restored. She's given back value as an individual and a privileged place among the children of God. The passage concludes, the woman left the jar and went to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I have done. Look at the change. Look at the complete and total change in this woman, the healing that has taken place in her heart following her encounter with the Lord. Before, she did everything in her power to avoid the people of the town, but now, now that she's met Jesus and he's healed her, she goes back to those very people freely seeking them out to share the good news of her healing. There's not only health in healing, there's freedom. After Mass today, we'll be offering the sacrament of anointing. Anyone, everyone is welcome to come forward here to the altar 
to receive the sacrament, one of the seven sacraments of the church. The simple conferral of the sacrament consists in the laying on of hands by the priest, a brief prayer of blessing, the anointing of forehead and hands uh, with the sacred oil made holy by God's blessing. The sacrament confers the grace of the Holy Spirit, the same gift given to the woman at the well, a grace in which the whole person can be touched and helped and perhaps even healed. Whether you choose to receive the anointing this evening or, or not, why not take some time in your quiet time this week and in your prayer, search your heart to identify lies that proceed or follow from your wounds, lies about yourself, lies you've been telling yourself, lies you've accepted as truth, and allow yourself time and space to hear the kindness of the Lord's voice, the voice of truth. During a healing session, when I hear a lie, I'll write it down, and then I know to address that. And when I address it, I will read scripture over that person. And when that person is confronted with scripture, with the truth, it takes a minute sometimes. It, it, they just, their soul pushes against it because that wound is so deep. But then other times when it does pierce their heart, the tears start streaming down their face. You can just see the transformation in their face with the reality, with the truth, that they are known, that the Father loves them, that they're not a mistake, that He delights in them. He has us written in His palm. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He didn't mess up when he created us. We are his masterpiece. He delights in us. He loves us. We're the center of his world. It's overwhelming to think what he thinks of us, but scripture states that. Just the absolute truth of, of his word, of his scripture, can completely and totally heal a wound from decades ago. Thanks for watching. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single video. You can be part of our mission to love God, love others, and make disciples by sharing this video. We're grateful you're part of this community.